uh, for us here today. I mean, when you're talking about gathering on Sunday morning for worship, I realize right off the bat that I'm preaching to the choir because you are all here gathered for worship on Sunday morning. Uh, so I, I get it, that you already understand that God is worthy of worship, and that's where we start, the fact that God is worthy of worship. Revelation 4.11, and you could go to hundreds of other places, says, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of worship. There's no other being that is worthy of our worship other than God. And we see outside of these walls, and quite often, too often in our own lives, that we are quick to worship a lot of different things. We can worship, you know, uh, sports teams. We can worship cars. We can worship uh, celebrities. We can worship um, certain fantasy stories or, or, you know, things that are made up. There are people that devote their lives to worshiping all sorts of things in a secular means. And then even taking that worship further to where you're not even sure whether they're really worshiping or not. I mean, I saw, I've seen as sort of a, a regular occurrence in the last eight to ten years, fairy festivals. Is anybody into these fairy festivals, right? They have them in Guelph and various places where people dress up with gossamer wings and hang out in the park and act like fairies, like literal fairies in the park with wings. And I'm not sure whether they're taking themselves seriously or not. So, I mean, we got to be careful with this idea of worship because we can get distracted by things that we end up celebrating and worshiping that are not God. But God is worthy of worship. And one of the things that I want to just touch on here before moving on is just a response to the argument that God is somehow a dictator or demanding or a megalomaniac that needs our attention. And this is often the criticism uh, that is pointed at Christians when God says that he's worthy of worship and that God says that we should worship him and that he is first in our life. And people step back and they say, like, who is this God? Is he, a, is he like an egomaniac? Does he, you know, need some sort of satisfaction from us? But in fact... That's not why scripture calls us to worship God at all. Worship is a response to our satisfaction in God. God doesn't demand of us anything except that we pursue our greatest joy. And our greatest joy, he knows because he made us, our greatest joy is found in him. John Piper refers to this as Christian hedonism. Hedonism is just the pursuit of pleasure. And he says, Christians are hedonists. We pursue pleasure unashamedly. God has created us and ordered us such that the most joyful and healthy and satisfying thing for us is to be fully satisfied and thus worship him. God gets the greatest glory when he's our greatest satisfaction. And to the degree that we're satisfied by other things in this world or that we seek after and find pleasure in other things other than God, to that degree we lessen the glory of God. So God has created this amazing sort of feedback circle that says, as you give me glory that I am worthy of, you actually gain the greatest satisfaction and joy. So it is to your greatest pleasure and joy to put me first in your life and give me pleasure. And Piper goes on with a great analogy that I've used before, but I just want you to think about it this way, because this is so important to a right understanding of worshiping God. 
That it's not a demand of us, that God does not need us to worship him, that we're not obligated, but in fact it's our greatest joy, and that it actually honors and glorifies God to be satisfied in him. And this couple analogies might help. If there is a pure, clean, refreshing mountain stream, you're on a hike and you're up in the mountains and there's this beautiful, crystal clear stream, how could you give glory to that pure mountain spring by any other greater way than by drinking from it and being refreshed by it. By drinking at that stream and allowing it to refresh you and restore you is to give that stream the greatest honor because it tells that stream, you are the source of my joy. You are the source of my refreshment. And so the stream is most honored by our satisfaction in it above all other streams or all other sources of satisfaction that we could have, above all other distraction. If the stream knows, now let's just sort of personalize this stream. Imagine the stream knows that it is the healthiest thing for us in the world. Would it be arrogant of the stream to say, drink from me? Or is the stream's desire that we drink from it and be satisfied in it the most loving thing that stream could do? It would be the worst act for that stream to say, no, 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 don't be satisfied in me. Don't drink from me. There's a sewer pipe over there. You should go drink from that. You should go be satisfied by these other lesser things. That's not loving. In fact, the stream is at its most loving and at its most giving when it says, I'm the best thing for you on this mountainside. Come and drink from me and be satisfied from me. Don't drink from any other source. Don't be satisfied in anything else except me. And in that, we give honor to the stream. We glory in the stream and the stream satisfies us. And we are truthful about what the glory of the stream is and what is best for us. Or you could put it this way. When we ask our children to listen to our voice, when we ask our children to heed our warnings and to follow in our steps, to learn from our lessons, is it because we're megalomaniac parents that demand the obedience and the attention of our children? Or is it because we know that the healthiest and most joyful outcome for their life is if they heed the greater wisdom that's before them and pursue a more noble lifestyle? We would never say... Look, kids, don't listen to us. You're good friends with that drug dealer down on the corner. He's got some really good advice for your life. You know, don't pay attention to my words. You know, I'm just a healthy, well-balanced parent. You better go listen to all the things that the media is telling you. Listen to all the things that your friends are telling you. I mean, they're 15 years old. They know everything. Right? Would we be loving as parents to say that? No. And so God is the same way, and this is important, that's why I'm emphasizing this, that he is worthy of worship, but it has nothing to do with God needing our worship. It has nothing to do with satisfying God's ego for us to worship him. God desires our worship because he knows that we will have the most pleasure and the most satisfaction and the most joy and the greatest health if we put our satisfaction in the one thing that will truly satisfy, and that is God. And that's why as Christians we worship God. Not because he demands it, but because he loves us and he has told us that if we put our satisfaction or our hope in anything else, it will end up in our destruction. And so that's at the heart of worship, knowing that God is our greatest treasure and that worshiping anything else more highly than God is not only unjust because nothing else in the universe is worthy, it would be a lie to say something is more worthy of worship than God, but also it produces in us less joy and less satisfaction and ultimately death. And to think that God needs something from us is to misunderstand the relationship. But then let's quickly survey the pattern of our worship. 
If you go through the scripture, and as was mentioned earlier this morning, you could go to just, you could flip the Bible open to almost any page, and there's examples of worship. The whole Bible is a testimony to the worship of, of God's people worshiping Him. But in the Old Testament, we see that, uh, the Sabbath was set aside. There was one particular day a week that was set aside to dwell on and to rest in the graciousness and the mercy of God, and that was the Sabbath in the Old Testament under the Jewish laws. And then we see that the people of God praise God after certain events. If you go to Exodus 15, you have the song of Moses and of Miriam after crossing the Red Sea and the defeat of of the Egyptians. And so there was praise and worship to God to celebrate certain things and acknowledge what he's done in the life of his people. And then there were regular celebrations in the law of the feast where they got together. There were seven Sabbaths through the the year, the feasts that were used to celebrate God. That was used for confession and for worship to meet at the tent of meeting and at the temple. In Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28 to 29, we see that. And to celebrate all the things that God had done. In 2 Samuel 6, 5, it says that as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, you see that God's people are responding to God in worship. And all of those worshipful responses are together as a people. And they're joyful. They're full of the joy of who God is. And then in the New Testament, you see a shift in the way God's people celebrate a little bit as it shifts to the first day of the week. we're, We're here not on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. We're here on Sunday. We're on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. And some people sort of wonder what that's about. But... In the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus rose on the first day in John 2, 1. It was the first day of the week that Moses or that Mary came to the, to the tomb and found it empty. We find in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecost on the first day of the week. And then we find in the practices of the early church, because of those reasons and others, that they met on the first day of the week to break bread together in Acts 20. They took up a collection and there was teaching in 1 Corinthians 16, and it was called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1 and other places. And this was just known Christian practice. One of the reasons we worship and we gather for worship the way that we do on the first day of the week is this is what Christians did. In 90 AD, the uh, a collection of works called the Didache was written, and it's the teachings of the disciples or the teachings of the apostles, and it's very much authentic. It's not scripture, but it's teaching that the church heard from the apostles. And they say, every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifices may be pure. And so this is just the common practice of Christians to meet and worship on the first day. But the importance of this worship and why do we do it? Why do we gather together? The first importance is gathering to glorify God. And we've talked about this a little bit already. But that we understand that when we come here as Christians, God is the most important audience in our worship together. It's not you guys being the audience and I'm up here trying to glorify you or, 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 or do something for you as much as the audience is God. And it's the same thing when you're all singing, you're not hoping that the person next to you thinks your voice sounds really great or that they notice that your hands are in the air, you know, or maybe you're more of the TV carrying hand raiser person or the one hander, right? Whatever, whatever one you are, wherever you are in the Pentecostal spectrum, right? But, but we're not here to put on a show for other people, right? When you're here sitting in your seat, we have one audience and the audience is God. Right, That we are here to give him glory. We gather together to glorify God. The church is an earthly shadow of God's heavenly kingdom. 
And so what we're doing here as we gather is we're reflecting in sort of an earthly shadow what is happening in heaven right now and what we are anticipating to happen in heaven in what is to come in the kingdom. Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says, John is speaking. He says, I looked and behold, this is the curtain pulled back so that, so that, so that John could see what heaven's like. And as this curtain is pulled back, he says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we are just this earthly reflection of this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-tongued congregation that's going to sing before the throne. And so as we gather together weekly, we're experiencing sort of a foretaste of what is to come. Our worship gatherings reflect that. It's tantalizing because what is good is good now, but what is to come is going to be so much more. And so we only really experience worship as God describes it in Scripture and as as John sees it in Revelation. You only experience worship like that here together. There's something about the gathering for worship that reflects what heaven is going to be like here on earth. Secondly, we gather to edify God's people through the ordinary means of grace. God accomplishes his purposes through means, and we've preached on this before, or methods. And the ordinary means that God uses to extend gracious transformation in our lives as his disciples are things like songs and hymns and prayer and teaching and his word and the ordinances of baptism and communion. And that means that our gatherings are filled with these means. When you show up here and we are praying or we are singing or we're taking communion or we're preaching or we're looking into the word of God, we're doing that deliberately because these are the ordinary means of grace by which God transforms us through his Holy Spirit. So when people ask us, and I I get this question, you know, how do I receive this grace from God? How do I get my life transformed? How do I renew? How do I get healing in my family? How do I get these? How do I learn these things? How do I you know, get that in my heart. How can I be satisfied in Jesus? Where do I hear God's voice? The answer is in the means of grace that God has given us. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us song. He's given us these gatherings. He's given us communion. He's given us baptism. These are where those things happen. They don't just happen on their own. They happen by participating in the ordinary means of grace. And that happens when we are in a gathering. In Acts 2.42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the early Christian church. This is what they devoted themselves to because they know that that grace from God comes from these things. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up and in brackets there, of God's people. He's talking about the building up of the church. And so this edification, and edification is just a fancy word for uplifting knowledge, which is a great way of putting it, uplifting knowledge. Central to that is the preaching of God's word through careful, hopefully spirit-filled unpacking of scripture. And this teaching of the word is supported by preparatory singing and responsive singing and corporate prayer and communion and fellowship and all of those things that the scriptures talk about here. But without gathering for worship, if you're trying to live the Christian life and you are ignoring this gathering together for worship, you are cutting yourselves off from the ordinary means of grace by which God 
desires to pour transformation and love and satisfaction into you. One way of looking at it is, how else could you love your wife except by spending time with her or your husband? How could you complain of feeling distant from or unloved or or uninfluenced by or uncared for by your spouse when you've never exercised the ordinary means of affection? The ordinary means of affection are spending time together and talking to one another and understanding one another and doing things and serving each other. But if we don't do those ordinary means of affection, then how could we complain that we don't have any relationship? And as Christians, we do the same thing too. We cut ourselves off from the ordinary means of grace and then wonder why God has not changed us or he feels distant. It's like the husband saying, oh, I love my wife, sure. I mean, we're married, of course I love her, but, but yeah, we see each other for an hour on Christmas Eve and on Easter. And now that you mention it, the relationship is growing a bit distant. Right? Like if you're only going to meet God twice a year, you're probably not going to have that strong of a relationship with him. And he can't affect a lot of change in your life. And so we gather together for the edification of each other and to receive the ordinary means of grace of the church gathered. We gather together to remember the gospel, the teaching of the apostles with the gospel. We just went through Galatians and Paul explained the gospel in Galatians saying that the gospel that was preached to him was not man's gospel, but it was God's. And then in John, in his letter in 1 John, he says that that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. That means it was made real, right? We could touch it and we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim it to you. So the the gathering together of us as Christians is for the proclam- is to remember the gospel. Remember that worship is only possible because Jesus came. He lived and he died and he rose to save sinners such as we are. So every Sunday on the Lord's Day, we get together as a reminder of the gospel and of the cross. An opportunity to look around at brothers and sisters exactly like ourselves who are only here because of what Jesus did. Nobody is sitting here today except that Jesus has done something for them in their life. The first series I did here four years ago, it might have even been the very first sermon I did, I called you all a bag of mixed nuts. And four years later, I stand by my observation. But it's important. It's important as we gather together in worship that we look across the aisles and we realize the people sitting here are just like us. Okay, there are broken hearts. There are broken minds. There are broken bodies. There are people struggling with sin. There are people hurting. There are people just as mixed up as we are. And all of us are here only by the good news and remembering and reminding ourselves that it's because of what Jesus has done that we're able to sit here and to give glory to God. And so we're gathering to remember the gospel, and we're gathering to proclaim the gospel. Even though corporate worship is not meant or designed primarily for unbelievers, right? Our audience is God. Absolutely our audience is God. Unbelievers are not the primary audience of Sunday mornings. They are not the people that we are aiming to please most. It's not an accident, though, that in these public gatherings and in these public worship gatherings unbelievers and those that are intrigued or attracted or maybe just dragged here by family, they end up here witnessing the people of God giving glory to something greater and someone greater than themselves. 
And so it's important that we understand that as we gather, and only in these gatherings do we get this special testimony, this special gospel proclamation of who God is as God's people gather together. Because unbelievers and outsiders come. Paul, in his description of what's going on in church in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 to 14, roughly, at the end of 14, he says, But if all prophecy, if all prophesy, if all are speaking the truth about the gospel and who God is, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. And so by us here prophesying or proclaiming the truth of who God is, then we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who could come to him. And so we're pleased to have visitors every Sunday, some who aren't believers, who may only be here under protest, but they're here in our gathered worship as a proclamation of the gospel to them, and it speaks transparently of our love for God and our dependence on the good news of his Son. We also gather to sing. One of the things that we do here, it's kind of unique to Christians. Well, not Christians uniquely, but it's one of the weird things that we do in our culture. I mean, other than the national anthem before a sports game, where else do you gather together and sing, right, in our culture? This is not something we do, but we do it here at church. In Ephesians 5.19, talking about how the church got together, Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And for some of you, it's better, it's mostly in your heart. Um, You know... (laughs) Just saying, me, me included. Uh, but yeah, like just make a joyful noise. Just you're singing from your heart. As Luke prayed, it's about our praise and our worship and our hearts turned towards God. And we're blessed with some fantastic music leaders and music team players here and instrumentalists at Lakeside. But it's not just musically, but also spiritually and theologically mature as well. We don't choose any song that we sing lightly and we pass over and we discard a lot of music that simply isn't theologically accurate or or properly expresses the gospel. And that's both new music and old music. I mean, there's some really mixed up hymns theologically too, right? So both old and new music we look at and we consider theologically, what is this saying? And the songs that we sing both praise God and preach to our own hearts. The reason that we gather together and we sing is that the songs that we sing are actually ways of preaching truth into our hearts, so the lyrics that we sing on Sunday are so important because what you sing on Sunday morning, you can, you can hum it and rehearse it and throughout the week as reminders of the truth of who God is. And putting truth to songs helps it stick in our hearts. And there's a love for the great heritage of church music that we've inherited from the past generations. And we return to hymns to sing in a new way as we have this morning. And also the new songs to the Lord. Isaiah 42.10 says, I sing a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. And so singing is one of those means of grace that are most effective in a gathering. I don't sing on my own. I don't like the sound of my own voice. And so I don't sing on my own a lot. But when I'm gathered here and I can sing sort of softly and make my voice sound like it's actually all your amazing voices, then I like to sing. Because it's just an awesome opportunity for my kind of feeble voice to join your voices and it sounds awesome. And so I only sing here. I don't sing on my own. So it's important that we gather to lift our voices together. I'm blessed by singing together. One of the greatest blessings actually that I have as a pastor is every two years I go to a specific pastor's conference down in Louisville. They have 8,000, excuse me, 8,000 pastors that gather at the Yum Center in Louisville. And you get 8,000, mostly men, 8,000 pastors singing. Like, it's powerful. It's cool. And, and they're just singing their hearts out. And then I'm standing there, and I'm singing, and I'm thinking, for some of these guys, this is their church every Sunday. 
Like those megachurches down there, they got like 7,000 people in them, and that's what they're experiencing every Sunday. You imagine 8, 9, 10,000 people singing to the glory of God. But you know what? 150 of you guys is awesome too. Just amazing. Because we are joining our voices on Sunday morning with all those voices that are being lifted to God. And if you keep reading Isaiah 42 down in verse 11, it goes on to say, Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice and the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. He says the cities and the villages. God calls whole villages and cities to sing from the mountains, from the desert to the coast. That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? If just the whole village of Halliburton was lifting its voices in praise to God. And so don't be shy when we're together. Sing out. Sing even if you sing low and add your voice to the praise of God because singing is important in our worship. The other reason we gather is to give. God doesn't need anything from us. But our offerings are a form of our worship and we do it in a gathering. But not because God needs it. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. So this is not about God needing anything that we have. He's God. You know, that kind of answers that question. But God is honored when his people show compassion through generosity. Our giving, just like all of the worship that we do, sends the same message that God is glorious and that God is our only treasure. That all the other treasures come after God and he can have the first of any other treasure that we have because he is our primary treasure. He's our only treasure. Philippians 4.18 says that our offerings are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God. And we do this as a gathering as instructed in 1 Corinthians 16.2. says the early church did this the first day of the week, every Sunday, in proportion to their prosperity. So that means as they prospered, they gave. So when you have a good year, you give more. If you have a bad year, you give a little less. That's the great thing about a tithe. It's 10% of 10%. And so when you have good years and as you prosper, you give more. And as you have bad years, you give less. But God is always and never stops being first and a part of your financial affairs. And by putting God's portion first and adjusting our lifestyle to what remains, it loosens our grip on every other worldly treasure we might have in our heart. And so again, even giving is one of those ordinary means of grace. And so people will ask me, well, you know, how do I get my heart more centered on God? How do I put my life so that it pursues God? Well, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. And so one of the ordinary means of grace that we have is, is that we take a portion of our treasure and we say, God, you get the first cut and then I'll be satisfied and and suffice and have more than enough on what is left. And that loosens our grip on the treasures of this world. It's one of the ways that we worship and say that all of this is yours anyway, God, and you're worthy of it. But it's a means of grace by which we loosen our grasp on the things that our heart desires to treasure above God. And we do it as a gathering as well to pool our resources for greater kingdom effect. The offerings that were brought in in the Old Testament to the treasury, talked about bringing them into the temple treasury, bring the offering into the treasury or into the storehouse of the temple. And Malachi uses that language in Malachi 3.10 where he says, you know, bring it in, test me, bring all your treasure into the storehouse together and see if I don't bless you more than you can imagine. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the same word in the Greek, though. 
he uses the word thesaurazun, which is a treasury or a storehouse. So he says, set aside in the treasury or in the storehouse collectively on the first day of the week to serve the needs of the church and the gospel so that anyone can benefit. And that's what we do here. As you give to Lakeside, we're able to do things like have full-time youth pastors, right, who can pour their lives into our teenagers and into the community teenagers and into the high school. And as you give, we're able to have VBS that hits 100 kids, and we're able to do Sunday school and have curriculum and crafts and everything for them, and we're able to have small group materials. We're just able to be able to do things here that can pour out from your generosity the ministry of the gospel that everyone can benefit from. So one of our acts of worship is giving that we see in the New Testament as well that's done as a gathering. The other thing that we do is we gather to pray. And I'll more on this this week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We're going to talk about prayer. But Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And so we do a congregational prayer, usually about halfway through the service, and sometimes that's led by our host, and sometimes you're invited to join in that verbally. So sometimes it's led from up here, and, and sometimes we all participate. But whatever way it's done, whatever method is used for congregational prayer, our expectation is, and your opportunity is to pray along with us, that you're lifting up your personal prayers to God. And that's why we set that time aside in our service, so that we are, like the early church here, as we're gathered, devoted to prayer. And these are times when we can be devoted to prayer together. We have these corporate prayer times through the week as well. You can be here tonight at 7.30. We have corporate prayer time as a church. You can be Wednesday morning. There's a men's prayer group that meets at 8 o'clock here at the church. There are times for you to pray through the week. And then we have these special times where we gather together, two or three times a year, where we gather as a whole church and pray. And I know a lot of you have been there, and those are times that are just rich in blessing. And we're going to have another one next week. And so I encourage you to stay after church and have a sandwich and stay with us for that. So these are the reasons that we worship gathering together, that we have one gathering for worship as Christians. Because it's not just coming on Sunday because our parents did it and because it's nice to meet some friends. It's because God is accomplishing all of these things and so much more in his worship. And of course, worship is itself a lifestyle. Our focus has been on gathering, but our worship doesn't end here. We take our worship out into the world. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so everything we are doing is for his worship and for his glory. We can sing and pray and give and read scripture on our own, of course, and we should do it on our own. But in fact, everything that we can do can be done to God's glory. You can work on your car to the glory of God. You know, you can do tons of different, you can work at your job to the glory of God for sure. You can love and spend time with your family to the glory of God. You can even discipline your children to the glory of God. You know, you can have a disagreement with somebody over a coffee to the glory of God. You know, you can go and vote conservative or NDP or liberal to the glory of God, right? You, there, you can do everything in your life to the glory of God, make everything worshipful. Or the things that we do in our life we can do to our glory or to the glory of Hollywood or to the glory of our car or to the glory of our health or to the glory of our pleasure. We can do things not to the glory of God. And so it's important that we take what we learn here in worshiping God and take it out with us into our lifestyle. Three quick things, just as warnings, and why we do what we do here together in the gospel. And very quickly, they are that 
We need this one gathering for worship as Christians because we're prone to wander. You know what? If you get out of the habit of being here on Sunday morning, it's not so much that I'm going to be disappointed. You won't necessarily hurt my feelings. It's not necessarily going to be bad for us or bad for God, but it'll be bad for you. Because God calls us sheep for a reason. And if you separate yourself from the flock and you're out there in the world wandering as, on your own and we are prone to wander, then we are in danger of being eaten by the world and consumed by the wolves. And so one of the reasons that we gather together as Christians is to come back into the fold regularly so that our hearts are reminded of where we are to be together and so that we're not in danger of being outside the flock but we're inside the sheepfold. And so we need this one gathering because we're prone to wander. The other danger in this gathering together is that we are prone to consume. And we've grown up since the 1950s in a consumer society like none other, right, with the rise of modern advertising in the 40s and 50s and the success of capitalism and all the momentum that it's been gathering and its ability to convince us that we've been put on the planet to consume it and not contribute to it. So when we start to look through that consumer lens, we can look at our gatherings together. And the warning here is that as we gather is that the gathering is for us to give. It's for us to give worship to God. It's for us to give service to others. It's not for consumption. And so in checking this one off the list, it's not just that you show up, but that you participate and that this gathering is to see the service of others and the use of their gifts and not be prone to be consumers, but to be contributors. And then connected to that one, just a final one, is another warning that comes with gathering together because there's good and bad whenever you get people together. But the other warning that we have in gathering to worship is that we're prone to criticize and this is nothing new either. I mean, if you go back into the New Testament and you look at the New Testament church, it seems that wherever there are churches, there are people gathering to worship and there are people gathering to argue about how they're supposed to worship and why they're together, right? And a surprising number of chapters in Paul's letters are devoted to correcting disagreements on how worship was supposed to be done, right? He's correcting communion. He's correcting the expression of the gifts. He's correcting stingy givers. He's correcting disruptive speakers. He's telling people how to pray. He's settling disputes about days of the week or modes of dress or what people should be wearing or what they're not wearing or whatever and what was appropriate at what time. And so when we gather together, one of the reasons that we gather together is not to criticize, but there's a danger in that. We have our preferences, but worship is not about us. Worship is about God. It's about a pattern of joyfully celebrating God and receiving his grace. And so if you look around and you see joyful people and you see God being glorified and you see the gospel being celebrated, then things are probably pretty close to how they should be. And that doesn't mean you can't offer suggestions or, or even better still, offer to be involved. But we have to be careful in these gatherings as we gather for worship that we're not complaining because we just want what we want. Nobody's doing things here because they don't want them. They're doing them and they're done the way they're done because they're joyful and they're edifying or else we'd be doing them differently. And so these are all the reasons, very practical, just all the reasons why we gather for worship, all these ordinary means of grace by which God intends to transform his people, and all the things that we can do to worship God and receive satisfaction from him. And so on our checklist, one gathering for worship, one time for prayer, one group for discipleship, one ministry for service, one friend for Christ, that one gathering for worship is important. Don't overlook the importance of Sunday morning. It's not by accident that we do what we do. It's not by accident that our service is structured the way it is, that we engage in the activities that we do. They are the means of grace by which God means to transform us and by which he means to accomplish his kingdom purposes on the earth and his name be glorified. Nothing we do is by accident. It's by God's instruction, by his love, and by his mercy for our benefit. Let's pray.